Hi, I'm Ann Doherty, co-founder of Alum. And I'm Sarah Kinzemius, co-founder of Alum. And you're listening to Current. We created this podcast as a way not only to bring you our take on the most important stories happening in the energy industry this month, but as a way to better tell the human side of those stories. Alum social scientists and researchers work with some of the largest utilities in the country to help them think through the opportunities and challenges of transforming our industry. Climate change, energy storage, electric vehicles, resiliency. Behind each and every one of those is not just a grid or a complex set of networks, but people. And that's what this podcast is all about understanding the relationships between those who create energy, those who consume it, and the natural resources that make that possible. So whether you're listening to us on your commute or while going out for a walk or a run, we're grateful you chose us to be part of your day. So what do you say, Anne? Let's get to it. Hi, everyone. This is Anne Doherty. And on today's podcast, I'm joined by two very special guests from Alum. Dr. Alex Dunn, Managing Director at Alum, and Dr. Liz Kelly, Technical Director for Qualitative Research at Alum, both of whom will be hosting a webinar on April 16th ahead of their presentations at ACEEE's Summer Study on Energy Efficiency in Buildings. And because the topic of their presentation is absolutely fascinating, I thought it would be great to have them both on the podcast. So welcome, Alex, and welcome, Liz. Excited to have you here. It's great to be here. Thanks. It's great to be here. So I want to start by first sharing with our audience that the two of you have something in common. You both have PhDs that incorporate linguistics. Now, linguistics isn't something we talk about much in energy, but I think it's important to talk about it here. And you approach the work in different ways. Tell us more about the lens by which you approach your work with our utility clients and specifically how you incorporate linguistics. Thanks. So, um... I am Liz Kelly, and I'm a technical director here at Alum, and I am a linguistic anthropologist and sociocultural anthropologist by training. And what that means, anthropologists study human behavior, human culture, how people make meaning in their lives. And linguistic anthropologists study language and context, which is to say, not the structure of language systems, but how it is that people actually use language, how people talk and how language um, works within communities to create connection between people. And we use language all the time. So I bring that training in, I'm doing interviews, in um, focus groups or any kind of group interaction, any kind of in-context research we do and workshops, facilitating workshops with clients, um, we are always using language and having that layer of attention and attentiveness to language um, is brings richness to the work that I do. Yeah, so my PhD is in uh, psycholinguistics, which is kind of a special subset of cognitive psychology. And um, <clears throat> I would say even before in my undergrad, I, I am a cognitive scientist and that basically takes in, you know, psychological, linguistic, neuroscience, computer science, anthropological perspectives, but it's all about trying to understand how people think. And <clears throat> my love has been always language in some way. And so uh, in my work, I studied bilinguals and how 
bilingualism affected thinking um, and in various different ways. And, and as Liz kind of talks about kind of like language in context, um, I firmly agree with that. I think what the lens of a, say, a cognitive psychologist or a psycholinguist is to also be thinking about kind of the minutia of how much that can affect your thinking in a way that um, is a little different. So, so Liz is, uh, has done a lot of field work and, and a lot of kind of qualitative assessment of language within a culture. And I've done a lot of work, um, particularly in grad school and after that a little bit on say how language can affect how fast you're responding to something. Um, and it's a much more kind of quantitative way of per perceiving things. But then there's also field work that you can do. So it's it's actually really fun when Liz and I get together. We have like 90% shared perspective and ideas. But that that little nuance of of looking at kind of like internal brain cognition perspective versus like the cultural context um, is fabulous because we we can pull out different tendrils of you know a larger concepts. Right now it seems like we're having a bit of a renaissance in understanding that that we need to be culturally competent. Um, and, and I think that's the, to the credit of, of so much kind of perspective of the fact that we as in the United States are becoming more diverse and have to start thinking about uh, people as not just kind of a default of say a monolingual white person. Um, and, and to do that, and especially with utilities, to bring it in within the utility context, but really everywhere, trying to engage everyone means meeting people where they're at with an empathetic perspective of things. And, and so that really is a, a really a new perspective, uh, one where I think people are starting to pay attention to language in a much broader, more important way. Um, and it's fun to see it's starting to, to really kind of come across as like, oh no, we all have these different kind of registers or modes that we function in. And, and if you want to engage someone who um, you may not necessarily know, then, then you have to start thinking a little bit different. Alex's dissertation research was on bilingualism and mine was on translation. Um, so it's, again, this very strange um, serendipity that we ended up working together on renewable, sustainable energy and energy efficiency. Um, so my um, dissertation, I looked at translation at, and particularly translation of novels. So uh, literary translation and representation of cultures. And I focused on um, novels that were being translated from Arabic into English and um, lived in and worked, lived in Egypt and worked at the American University um, in Cairo Press and which published at the time published um, the most like the highest number of translations um, in, in any given year. Um, and one of the things that I was looking at was around how at a particular, this is in the project sort of started in around like 2007 when the United States was at, had invaded uh, Iraq and was, had multiple sort of like military incursions in the broader region of the Middle East. Um, and one of the things I was looking at is the way in which translation and military translation, or excuse me, literary translation was being framed as a way um, of addressing this kind of like political and military debacle. That the problem in Iraq was that we didn't have a cultural competency and that was why the war um, was going so poorly was we didn't understand each other because we didn't have a shared cultural context like shared novels. And so one of the responses was this um, sort of in public sphere discourse in like 
articles in the New Yorker, like read these novels because then we'll understand what's going on. So I, so I, I looked at how translations were being framed in the context of a situation where there was a lot of reason to have cultural communication and cross-cultural communication. All right, so let's get to your paper. Your presentation at ACEEE is entitled, A Rose is Not a Rose by Any Other Name, Why Language and Context Matters. When did you first notice that there was something inherent about language that presented an opportunity for utilities? We've been wanting to write this paper for a really long time, so we're so excited to be able to have a paper and to, um, and to do this webinar and to even be having this conversation here. So this has been a long time coming, I would say. Um, for me, I'm newer to the industry than Alex, but I will say it was very, like, one way in which I've been thinking about this basically since I started was around uh, language, the industry language, and the way that jargon uh, sort of sometimes filters into customer communications. And so as someone who is new to the industry and attentive to language, I was like, oh, isn't this interesting? People talk about measures. Okay, got it, measures. But then I started noticing times when even in customer facing materials, most of the time those, that kind of word, you know, what other measures have you installed is not included in customer facing material, but sometimes it is because we are so, we are so used to it in this industry um, that it can be hard to edit out. And so, um, so one of the ways in which I think about this is just thinking about what is the language people use and making sure, again, you know, use the language that people use. No one talks about their water heater as a measure unless you're in the context of an energy efficiency program and you're getting an incentive. And you can even think something like incentive or rebates. Um, yeah, so, so that's one way. And then another way, and this is not so much about bilingualism or translation, but even within English, but the language of the utility um, is sometimes different than the language that people use to talk about your, their homes. And one of the things I love about this work as an anthropologist is that um, just thinking about people in their homes and your home as, your as a space that you craft with your family, the intimacy of that domestic space and utilities are there, create, like, this is the GE tagline, but we bring good things to life. Like, I think that's brilliant because, like, there, GE's, like, there, but utilities are there, too. Um, and thinking about how it is that people actually talk about their home, which may or may not always align with, um, with a language that, that customers use. So one of the things we see in a lot of um, material is around comfort, like making your home more comfortable. But when we talk and to indicate either HVAC programs or air sealing and insulation. But when we talk to people about like what makes their home comfortable, they are not most of the time in interviews or conversations. When people talk about comfort in their home, they're not talking about HVAC. They're not talking about insulation. They're talking about the feeling that they have from the people. Um, so in one form or another, this paper I think has been in, in like Liz and Mai's brain for a long time. And, and when we started working at Illum together, um, we just, well, obviously immediately bonded over language and our love of, of how much this matters, but um, <clears throat> started also working with clients and articulating this, this really important thing. And I think utilities now have shifted from a perspective of, you know, of old where it was, we don't need to contact or communicate with our customers unless we have to, to now going, 
oh, well, things are different now. We need to engage with our customers um, in a comprehensive way and not from a fear-based or collections way, but actually showing the value of what utilities bring, trying to bring to the fore that this is not, I mean, it is a basic uh, elemental, very important thing, but also trying to articulate how darned hard it is. Um, from <clears throat> the utilities perspective, I think they've got a really tough job, like, you know, uh, trying to then keep, manage the grid, keep it all balanced, uh, deliver electricity or gas, you know, it's really, really tough for them. So trying to articulate all that when what we see as human beings is a functional use of electricity, um, and therefore we don't think of it the same way, is really hard. So how do you, how do you conceptualize and talk about all the things that utilities do to keep electricity running or to keep the gas going, as opposed to the end uses that we think of things? Talk to me more about that. So it's, to us, I think I, I'm speaking for Liz in this one, it's just like a deep love of language has always brought this to a fore. But seeing now the, the sea change that is happening in, in communications and how utilities need to be and are starting to engage with customers, it seems like the perfect time to really bring language to the fore because, you know, before this, um, <clears throat> you know, language was much more legal and much more kind of, as Liz described, like that measure focus, that very like engineery focused perspective. And now it needs to actually kind of get up with the times with the rest of say marketing and actually go beyond and start articulating um, with words that actually have meaning to a customer. Utilities are in such an interesting environment because everyone relies on the service they provide to get to do to live their daily lives it's it's like a necessity um it's not doesn't feel like a product i'm choosing like i can't think of i can be like i'm just not gonna i'm just not gonna have get my connection to electricity i can opt out of cable but i don't feel like i can opt out of electricity um but i don't as a person who lives in a home i'm not like i'm gonna i'm gonna use some electricity today it's like i'm gonna turn on a light or i'm gonna make something, cook something, or use my computer, or watch TV, or whatever. Um, so there's that difficulty of, like, the only time people, often people are really thinking about their consumption is either when they look at the bill, or when it's not available, an outage. So it's, like, invisible until it's not. And so just the, like, how do you communicate about something and get people to pay attention? But, like, do we need to, like, it is my perspective that people have lots of things going on in their life and it's probably not great for utilities to give them one more thing to like think about and worry about. So how do we communicate and help utilities communicate about something that people most of the time don't want to be thinking about because they want to be doing all the other things that they have to do and they want to do and that they, uh, you know, great, do, do all those other things. <laughs> like we shouldn't need to think about our electricity all the time. Speaking broadly, what are you seeing on the utility side when it comes to language that made you think, wow, this utility or client is definitely onto something? Or perhaps another way of asking this is, you know, what type of research regarding language are utilities gravitating towards? I am really excited. Um, some of the research we've gotten to do for Massachusetts, they did a non-participant study that um, it was really amazing to look at who is not participating. The PAs in the state wanted to know who's not participating in the in their programs, and so ran a whole study um, to to identify and speak with non-participants. 
in their programs. And as a part of that, one of the groups that they were particularly interested in were um, people with limited English proficiency. And so um, I think that that was a, a incredible opportunity to explore how language um, mattered and where it came into play and how language was a barrier or access to um, services in Spanish and, other, and Portuguese and other languages was a barrier to um, to people within those communities. Um, I think in general, we, we did have an opportunity also to do a benchmarking study. So looking at what other utilities are doing, you know, Cal the California utilities are pretty far ahead in terms of communicating, creating websites that are available in multiple languages and not just through Google Translate. Um, but actually have, have been like actually translated. Um, human translation, um, or at least human edited of, uh, machine translation. Um, and I think right now what we're seeing is this, um, this sense of a challenge around like, where do you begin? And this sense that like, we well, can't do everything. So how do I do anything? Like, what do I do? And I think that, um, is a I am empathetic with that perspective of like yes if you in your service territory you may have people who speak hundreds of languages and it is like no one has the budget to create from it every single interaction in all of those languages and so how do you navigate that so that to me seems to be one of the um, meaty challenges that uh, that utilities are facing now certainly the past three years but um even in the past five years, I've had a lot of utility clients come to me and say, like, well, how, how do we do this? What we need to engage customers. We know that, you know, 10 years down the road, we're going to be asking them to do things just given climate change, given the, <clears throat> the reliability of the grid and, and understanding that, that this is going to be much more of a back and forth. And, and so how do we start that now and set this up so that they see the services we provide and then, then we can articulate this, this larger kind of relationship. And, um, you know, in addition to the work in Massachusetts, we've done <clears throat> work, you know, it, both in California at my previous job and then also uh, for PSCG Long Island now that where we're currently really trying to ask those questions from a, a foundational way of understanding what how customers think about energy, um, how customers think about electricity, how they think about things on Long Island and the culture and how it reverberates throughout. And and we're doing, you know, you're, you asked specifically kind of like what type of research is, are people gravitating toward? And, and I, admittedly, that's biased by like how I help scope things. But I would say that one of the best ways of doing this type of research is to to combine multiple methods to really understand what's going on. And, and some of that is actual community, community observations, listening to how people are talking, really understanding the words they're using, um, not just in the kind of limited English proficiency perspective, but, but across everything, because using the words people are using will make a huge difference. Understanding the target customers that you want. If you really need to engage and should, in my opinion, engage those that can't speak English very well. How do you go about doing that? And um, <clears throat> what community partners do the, does that group of people trust? Coming from my perspective, I'm half Argentine. I lived in Argentina until I was eight and coming back to the States and as a child and trying to like grapple with this totally different perspective of culture and how people move around the world, that all influenced, you know, the decisions me and my family made. And it still influences things, even though, you know, I'm pretty darn Americanized um, 
throughout. So it's it's understanding and having an empathy for that that I think means that you you need to really directly talk with customers, and you need to do that in multiple ways so that you're getting a perspective that is very zeroed in from say like that anthropological perspective, like really focused in on on that individual deep perspective from one person or five or ten people, um, <clears throat> spending hours with them, going through their homes, and we've done this in Georgia uh, with in Georgia, okay. we've done this in. Long Island, and we've done this in Massachusetts, and um, all of those have given really profound observations about the history, the local culture, and how people interact with their utilities. But then having an ability to then pull back and come out with more quantitative information, more quantitative research, once you've gotten that foundational understanding of culture and perspective and testing how customers in a quantitative way um, are going to respond to something will give uh, a utility and others a way to create a strategy that I think is is what's really, really necessary right now. And so, you know, the kind of coming back to your original perspective of like, wow, this they're onto something. I, multiple utilities right now are onto something with the recognition that their traditional marketing strategies have to change, or at least that they might need more than one and that they're going to use research specifically to answer how to create those strategies. And that's different. That's definitely something that I think now is burgeoning within this context and why, you know, we get asked to do something. We, it's pretty rare you have two linguists in a company um, in this industry. In fact, you know, I felt like I, my previous employer was taking a complete chance on me to, to hire me into this industry. And, and I've just fallen in love with it because it's such a nuanced and tough thing to grapple with and language has a profound effect on on how you engage customers. To build on um, what Alex was saying about the qualitative and then quantitative and doing a mixed method, we we just completed a study, a sentiment analysis survey for a client where we had previously done ethnographic, like in-depth ethnographic research. And it was amazing to have that opportunity to take the findings from the ethnography, use that to craft a survey, to really listen and see how people were actually talking, what language were they using, and then to be able to um, measure that quantitatively and, and to pull both of those together. Uh, it, that sort of mix of qualitative and quantitative um, can be really valuable in terms of both identifying patterns and themes and then quantifying them and validating it through a survey or other quantitative metrics. In your preview for the webinar, you note that today's utility customers are more diverse, communicate in a variety of languages, and also, depending on who they are speaking with, employ different language registers throughout the day. We're not just talking about translating anymore, are we? What are we talking about? So we're definitely not just talking about translation. Um, the register refers to the, like how casual the level of formality of a particular conversation word utterance to use a linguistic word. Um, and if you think of how you might tell even the same story in different contexts, so you might tell the same, a funny thing happens to you and you might tell that um, to a group of friends and with particular kinds of embellishments and the language you'd use and you would tell it probably differently in a conversation with your boss or in a conversation with your grandmother. Um, Potentially not, but um, but often people's language changes. And so I think a lot of the other thing is that a lot of communication happens implicitly. So one thing to be aware of is that 
especially within interpersonal communication, uh, we don't need to spell everything out. If you have a, an ingoing relationship with someone, you know, if you can think, imagine the scenario of um, two people who share a, an apartment and someone, one of them walks in and says, oh, it's cold in here. Well, that's a description in the world, a description of their sensory experience. Um, but if, if they have a habit of um, temperature differentials where one person likes it colder and the other person likes it warmer, it may also be um, an implicit ask, an, an implicit question, can you close the window or can you open the window um, or, or turn off the fan or turn, you know, they may be actually asking something even if they're, it sounds like they're only stating it. Um, when my son was little, he would say, mama, I'm hungry. It's like, it's a statement, it's a statement, but of course it's not a statement. It's an, he, he's not telling me just so like I'm aware of his body. He's telling me because he wants me to give him food. And so um, this is called like performativity in language is that language acts in the world. It doesn't just describe the world. So um, I know I've strayed from this question of um, register and translation, but I think thinking about what is the language that we are using doing in the world? What is it, what is it doing? How is it changing? How does it shift? Um, is important to think about. And um, especially as I wouldn't say that um, marketing teams are less interested in, in, in like more surface level, but I, I think actually there's, there's often the marketing, the, the marketing clients that I work with are often attentive to trying to reach customers in a way that, um, that is resonant because often they want to capture that, like what's going to get to people. Um, you know, you have like not even 10 seconds on social media, you have like a, a blip. So you need something that's really going to pop. Uh, so I do think that there's an attention to what are people, what is the, the language that people are actually using? What's going to spark that um, in the moment right now? Kind of follow what Liz was talking about, really what she's describing is pragmatics. And, and that is kind of uh, a lot of what she's worked on, which is the, you know, a language is used within certain contexts. And to me, pragmatics is always about kind of the different perspectives. But if you take a bilingual perspective, it's even brought to the fore more um, <clears throat> registers you can think of as, you know, how we speak at work versus not. But uh, there's also, say, Spanish, where you have two different kind of um, endings of things. So you have the usted versus the tutear, kind of the tu variant of things. And, you know, one's meant to be much more informal, one's meant to be much more formal. That is, you know, you can think of that as a register, a, a, a linguistic register um, within that context. And so say you're translating something into Spanish from a utility, then you need to actually make that decision. So it's, it's like a very, very specific. Um, going even further, Japan, excuse me, Japanese actually has, um, it's almost as if, um, I have a very close Japanese friend who would describe how she knew how to speak kind of the more informal in her home Japanese, um, but going to Japan was always really hard for her. She's Japanese American because, you know, it was almost like speaking a different language in a much more formal setting. And so these are the things that I think are just really darn tough to do. So <clears throat> it's beyond translation. It's thinking about the cultural context of how you want to parlay that message. And then kind of moving into this perspective of, of really um, 
<clears throat> having a deep understanding from a utility perspective, like how can't, what, what can you get away with as far as register, um, as far as even in translating something. So um, I don't think the utility can get away with being like super informal because of the role that they have within the society um, <clears throat> and the way that they are perceived by customers in this kind of monopoly way that you have to pay them money. So there's this transactional kind of component to it, which is very different from, say, other marketing um, that you can do, like Coca-Cola could get away with doing something much more informal that I don't think a utility could, being, um, you know, regulated utilities in particular. So it's, <clears throat> registers actually something pretty profoundly important to think through, um, not just in a, a kind of a, a language translation thing, but also, like how informal can you get? What can you get away with or what you really just shouldn't go there? Um, <clears throat> and then also how to take advantage of if you have to be in a formal register, um, how, can you, how can you parlay that uh, into a good solid kind of communication strategy? Now let's get a little deeper here. I wanna talk about being woke and language as a conduit for equity without giving away too much before the webinar or your presentation. Talk about why it's important for utilities to have diversity at the table, specifically as it relates to communication. I can't say enough to be sure that someone either on your team, um, although it's not fair to tokenize someone and be like, oh, you speak Spanish, so you should read all of these things and copy edit everything. But, um, but getting someone who can speak the language that you are translating into or who is a part of the group that you're um, trying to reach to test it, whether that's an internal person, a stakeholder who's at the table, how important that is, or, um, or through research. Um, there's a great example in an ACEEE paper from a couple of years ago about a utility on the West Coast, and they wanted to do a campaign about um, staying away from power lines, and they had this like ladders and tools tied up with caution tape, and then they tested it and found that, first of all, people didn't understand it didn't understand the message they were trying to get across around staying away from power lines. And caution tape, um, particularly within Black and African American communities, really evoked police tape and police brutality. And so entered into a whole conversation that the utility was not trying to, um, to get at. And so they were able to re rework it and they used, um, I think, a stick figure near a power line with like a X or something, something that was um, they found was more easily comprehensible. And so just the benefit of testing with the people, putting it in front of the people who you're trying to reach, seeing if it, if it works and where possible having more diverse teams so that maybe that in that, in that case, maybe the police tape comes up before you get to testing. Um, so that would be my spoiler alert, but also just like user testing and diversity on project teams. Yeah, um, I have no problem giving away kind of like too much before the webinar in the sense of like, to me, if I can shout this from the rooftops, it is the most important thing I think um, that a utility can think of. And that is that uh, we need to incorporate diversity into all a manner of this type of work. And, and here's the reason, there's a concept within psychology and anthropology, sociology, um, kind of called in-group and out-group. And, and I think a lot of people think of like, oh, well, out-group is, you know, the, the person that's trod upon. But what it's really trying to talk through is that um, <clears throat> we, uh, just by basic 
necessity cognitively categorize things all the time. So we categorize chairs, that things that you can sit on. We categorize this. Well, we categorize people. We, we have these different groups. This kind of goes along with register, right, in the sense that these are the different groups. But you can definitely categorically think of different groups, cultural groups, um, and you need to have an in-group person doing the research or at least informing the strategy, the perspective, the language that's being used. And, and by saying that, like, um, I feel like in this case, I don't count as a Latina. I speak Spanish. Um, I grew up there until I was eight, you know, but it was Argentina. It was very, very different. Um, but my mom's American. And, and for the most part, when we were in the States, we we're speaking English. And I didn't have a huge Latino culture surrounding me. But <clears throat> if you want to engage Latino customers, you need to have uh, a solid understanding of what the Latino culture is in your community to engage them. And, and that differs where you go. So if you're in Southern California, you can have a, make an assumption or at least study and understand that you might be talking to a larger group that's Mexican-American, um, particularly around the border area. If you're in Massachusetts, you have a large group of people that are Portuguese or a very specific subset of, of say, Latinos. And, and those cultures might be different. In New York, you have a large, you know, kind of enclave of Puerto Ricans. How you communicate to them versus the Cuban kind of enclaves in Florida might be different. And so you actually need to be thinking about that, not just this like ubiquitous, oh, I have a Latino on my marketing group or in, within the research. Um, <clears throat> part of this that's so important to me is just understanding that, that we as human beings are colored by our perspectives throughout. And that we um, can't make the assumption that even though I think about language in this very kind of scientific cognitive way that I'm going to catch something that um, would culture resonate. And so Liz's example of the kind of the using the police tape of kind of do not cross is actually kind of a perfect one because, you know, they did exactly what you're supposed to do. They, they tested that out. Um, and that's, you know, good research you can actually start seeing what's happening by doing good research like that. Making sure that it's culturally competent um, before you put it out into the world is a huge thing. And you see mistakes, and I think that it's okay um, to acknowledge that I think when you're trying to do this, which is really challenging, trying to engage these different groups, um, you're going to make mistakes. You're not going to have a message that resonates with everyone. And so that's hard, I think, when you are a utility and you have a limited budget and you're trying to engage people in different ways. Like, how, how do you prioritize one thing or another? And that, that, I think, takes a lot of, like, introspective understanding of what really the, the utility wants to accomplish for this, you know, marketing time and, and, and figure that out, how to communicate in such a way for those goals. Setting that up, setting up a way of testing it and deriving it is really important. The equity piece is so profoundly important. We need in this industry, not just in what we've been talking about now, but within evaluation, within everything that we do um, at Alum, we need more in-group researchers. We need more Latino and Black and Asian, particularly um, researchers who can inform and give their perspectives on the research. For those of you listening, please be sure to save the date for April 16th at 10 a.m. Central to catch this webinar, where Liz and Alex are going to dig deeper in, on these topics. And we also look forward to seeing their presentation at ACEEE in August, and we hope that we'll be able to catch up with a lot of you listening at the conference then. 
Liz and Alex, it's been great having you today on the podcast. Thanks. This is so fun. I could talk about this for like three hours. So luckily we have a <laughs> webinar. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Uh, it's been really fun. I, I live for talking about linguistics. So this is just, you know, I'm Chocho, which is very happy. This concludes another episode of Current. Thanks for listening. And Current was created by Illum's production team, music by Blue Dot Sessions. See you next time.